Live from Members Only Studios, welcome to Living in the 80s, the podcast where we talk about anything and everything having to do with the 1980s, the best that we remember it. This week, I'm very excited to be talking about this particular subject. Uh, I know I say that a lot, and you know, quite frankly, a lot of this 80s stuff really gets me excited. But this one in particular, because of course we're talking about music, probably my favorite thing of the 80s to go back and, and discuss. But this week, we're going to be talking about bands that maybe under the radar, maybe we've heard of some of them, maybe we haven't, maybe they just known for one or two hits, maybe they're somebody that you, you've kind of maybe liked or whatever, and we all have those. We all have those bands that we just kind of wonder, like, why weren't they any bigger than they were? So what I've done, I've had several uh, former co-hosts join me this week. We want to make a case for why the particular artist we are going to present to you, why they should be considered as remembered better than than they probably are. So in hindsight, looking back going, you know, this band should have made it. And, and I want everybody to plead their case. So we have Aaron and Matt and Art, and Sean, and Sean, and Kevin, and Mike, and of course, Debbie. Uh, so we're going to talk all about bands that we feel are maybe underappreciated, and hopefully uh, it'll jog your memory some, and you know, in the comments section on the Living in the 80s Facebook page, go in there and tell us like what band or bands do you think were maybe overlooked. So like I said, very excited about this topic and hope you enjoy it as much as I did getting everybody together and kind of hearing what everyone had to say. And it's going to be a really cool podcast. So I think my favorite part of the podcast is the fact that the artists represented here are so eclectic. We've got uh, a hard rock band. We've got a garage band. We've got a synth band straight ahead rock and roll there's everything here so hopefully there's even a christian band represented this week so if nothing else we've got variety around here and as a special bonus you are going to hear the number one song the very first song released in 1980 to kick off the decade you have to listen real close to figure out when that's going to be but i think it's uh I think it's pretty cool. We're going to start off, of course, ladies first. So Debbie, take it away. My favorite underrated band is Go West. Go West is an English pop duo formed in 1982. The band consists of lead vocalist Peter Cox and rhythm guitarist and backing vocalist Richard Drummy. When they first became a band, they did not have a recording label, so recorded their first two songs, We Close Our Eyes and Call Me, with the producer that they hired. 
Chrysalis Records heard these songs and signed them immediately. Their self-titled debut album was released in 1985 and featured the singles We Close Our Eyes, Call Me, and Don't Look Down. The song We Close Our Eyes reached number five on the UK singles chart, number five on the US Dance Club play chart, and number 41 on the Billboard Hot 100. The video for this song was directed by Godley and Cream and was considered to be unusual for its time. It was an early favorite on MTV. This song was the only appearance by Go West in the UK Top 10. In 1986, Go West released the album Bangs and Crashes. This two-record LP was the album that got my attention. It contained remixes of Call Me and We Close Our Eyes, along with B-sides and live tracks. It also included One Way Street, which was included on the Rocky IV soundtrack. In 1986, they received the Brit Award for British Breakthrough Act. In 1987, Go West released their follow-up albums, Dancing on the Couch. It made it to the UK Top 20, but was not as successful in the US. It did, however, yield their first American Top 40 single, Don't Look Down, the sequel, which topped out at number 39. They continued to record into the 1990s with King of Wishful Thinking from the 1990s film Pretty Woman, which topped out at number 8, as well as Faithful, which made it to number 14 in 1992. And now, for your listening pleasure, from 1987, here is Don't Look Down, the sequel by Go West. Hello, my name is Sean Laird, and my most underrated band of the 1980s is the band The Fix. The Fix is an English band and became around in the early days of MTV. As a matter of fact, my first exposure to them was through MTV. The success of the band through this medium was at a time that if you had a video and were ready to go, MTV was the place that you wanted to be. The Fix would probably be described as early English New Wave with their use of heavy keyboards. But they also used bass to define and shape the songs and atmospheric and very rhythmic guitar work from their guitarist, Jamie Westorham. They're definitely a different band with a different sound and a different style. The band began to form around 1979 and didn't have a release until 1981, but it was only on BBC. They were signed to MCA Records And their first release that we knew as U.S. fans was Shuttered Room, which came out in 1982. This album produced the singles Red Skies at Night and Stand or Fall. The videos for these songs helped define the band and gave us our first glimpse of them as rock stars. In the video Stand or Fall, the singer Cy Kernan walks down the beach with a white horse while a battle rages in the background. During this time of the early days of MTV, many of the songs were turned into many films. And in this case, the look of the film with the battle in the background seems like an epic production. From there, the band came out with the album Reach the Beach, which was their biggest success. It went to number eight on the U.S. charts and came out in 1983. This album was produced by Rupert Hine, an association that would help the band in many ways down the road. 
This album produced two singles, both with great videos, Saved by Zero, a video in which the singer Cy Kernan is an artist in a studio. And then the second one, One Thing Leads to Another, their biggest single. This video features Cy Kernan going down a long tunnel. The images of the band in the tunnel and the dance that Cy is doing towards the camera as he walks towards it became one of the defining images of the band. From there, they followed up in 1984 with the album Phantoms. This has a single called Are We Ourselves. In this video, another tremendous production, the band is running around the English countryside in the shadow of a large satellite. Singer Cy Kernan sings the lyrics through the use of a cell phone, which, as a side note, was the first use of a cell phone in a rock video. The band was asked to contribute a track for the Streets of Fire soundtrack, a Walter Hill film. This was in 1984, and the song that they put on the soundtrack is Deeper and Deeper. If you watch that film today, it's played during the ending credits. The band then came out with Secret Separation, a single off the Walkabout album in 1986. Their last U.S. hit was Driven Out. It came out in 1989 and was on Calm Animals. It's a heartfelt call to re-examine our lives and find renewed value and strength. There have been several other releases after this, although they've not charted in the U.S. Their sound and the future keeps evolving. Their songs still continue to challenge us with questions of important subject matter. A friend of mine in the 80s had a phrase that he would use. It was for all the bands that he said that he liked. He called it rock with a conscience, meaning that he wanted to have rock music, but he also wanted it to have a message. The lyrics and the songs from The Fix are meant to ask questions. Their songs were always enjoyed by me at the beginning, but then later when I looked into the lyrics, I found the deeper meaning. The great part about The Fix is, if you agree with me that they're one of the most underrated bands of the 80s, is that you can still see them today. They still continue to tour endlessly. And as a matter of fact, I just saw them November 9th at the Kent Stage in Kent, Ohio. They play there about once a year, as they do with a lot of locations here in the Midwest and across the U.S. The great part about the band is now, after the shows, because the crowds are a lot smaller than what they were in the 80s, the band is there to meet the fans and answer questions and spend time with you. They are very friendly guys and seem to be excited by the energy they get from the fans, even from today, four decades later. Keep in mind that the band is mostly the original lineup from the earliest days. Singer Cy Kernan and drummer Adam Woods. Guitarist Jamie Westorham. Keyboardist Rupert Greenall. And Dan K. Brown, a bass player they picked up in 1983 right after the Reach the Beach album. As I was preparing for the podcast, I wanted to take one line from a song. And I decided to relay from their biggest hit, One Thing Leads to Another a song about politicians. It's still today true as it was even back then. Why don't they do what they say and say what they mean? And now from 1982, here's The Fix with one of my personal favorites, Red Skies at Night.
thank you for listening to Living in the 80s. We want to take this opportunity to thank all of those that helped make this possible. First and foremost, we want to thank Anchor for providing this platform for us to share this podcast. We also want to thank Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Tuned In Radio, and about a dozen others. We also want to give a special thank you to Star1079.com and Roundtown Radio, where you can hear this podcast weekly. Also, be sure to check us out at our website at livingin80s.us, and of course, on our Facebook page, Living in the 80s. Thanks, and back to the show. Hey there, all you cool cats and kittens. This is Aaron Benner from Parts Unknown. Rob asked me to suggest a band from the 80s that I consider to be underrated. I thought about it for a while, and one name kept going through my head. When I think of this band's name, I don't imagine high-priced electric cars or a brilliant, long-dead inventor. I just think of rock and roll. The band's name that I'm thinking of is Tesla. Tesla is an American rock band formed in Sacramento, California in late 1981 by bassist Brian Wheat and guitarist Frank Hannon. Originally, they were called Earthshaker before changing their name to City Kid. In 1986, however, they changed their name one final time and became known simply as Tesla. The band is ranked as number 22 on VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Hair Metal and have been described as a thinking man's hair metal band. I personally think they should be rated much, much higher than that. Although they are well known, they never really achieved the level of popularity that some of their less talented peers in the 80s rock scene achieved. We're looking at you, Poison. It's a shame. However, they are still going strong today and can be seen next summer as they tour all over the country. Here's a song from their 1989 album, The Great Radio Controversy. This is Tesla with Love Song. Hey Rob, I know you're a big fan of popular music, and no doubt you're familiar with the group of musicians in the 60s and early 70s known as the Wrecking Crew. These were professional studio musicians that were brought in, specifically in Southern California, to lay down the instrumental tracks for many, many popular artists. In fact, I think they've played on over 140 top 10 songs. Unfortunately, by the time the 80s rolled around, you really didn't have the wrecking crew to lean on anymore. You had a bunch of studio musicians that were on countless tracks that formed Toto, so they're kind of similar. However, the group that I'm going to talk to you about today, because I think they're criminally underrated, would be comprised of a bunch of studio musicians that worked in England, and they came together to form the Art of Noise, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. You 80s music aficionados probably are familiar with the name Trevor Horn. Well, he was a member of the the Buggles with Video Killed the Radio Star. Um, But you also might know that he was a very huge producer in the 80s. In fact, in England, they said that he made the 80s by producing such huge acts as ABC and Frankie Goes Hollywood. Um, He also did a bunch of stuff with Pet Shop Boys. However, one that stands out is Yes's 90125. And the reason 
it stood out is he brought together this wrecking crew of musicians to work on the album along with Yes. For this particular album, he used a core of musicians and producers that he had worked with before and also brought in some other heavy hitters. He used the engineer and producer Gary Langan because of his extraordinary work with Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. He also brought in a programmer by the name of J.J. Jeslik. Now, J.J. used to work with this sampler that, gosh, the sampler made the 80s. It was called a Fairlight Synthesizer slash Computer slash Synthesizer. And it was so notoriously difficult to work with that people made careers just by learning how to program these things so that musicians could play them. And he also brought in Ann Dudley. Ann Dudley is a, a string arranger and also a, a keyboard slash piano player that has appeared on countless top 10, um, top 20 hits. She'd be the equivalent of Hal Blaine, the drummer for The Wrecking Crew, who, who played on so many different things. Instead of the drummer from The Wrecking Crew, Trevor Horn had Ann Dudley playing keyboards. Again, fascinating person. I could talk about her for hours. In a nutshell, he told them the direction he wanted uh, this album, 90125, to go. And had them sample a few things. And then, in a, in essence, locked them in into a room and said, put some stuff together. And after a few days, they said, hey, check this out. What they came up with turned into Owner of a Lonely Heart. And Trevor Horn thought it was so revolutionary, so different. He was flat out amazed. You can hear this original mix that they came up with for Owner of a Lonely Heart. It's called the Red and Blue Mix, and it's on YouTube. You might be interested in checking it out. Again, Trevor Horn was so blown away, he's, he thought, man, we should do something with this. And from there is where they came up with the idea of forming an actual band. So he had... Langan at uh, at the controls and J.J. Jeslik doing a lot of the programming and Dudley playing most of the stuff. Um, Trevor Horn himself played bass in Art of Noise. And then he also brought in a music journalist and art director by the name of Paul Morley. And Paul Morley was the guy who had the idea of, of this being a faceless band. So that's why for uh, several years... They just wore masks, and they didn't appear in their videos. It was all supposed to be kind of uh, mysterious. Their first album was Into Battle with the Art of Noise, and it had a lot of the songs that you might be familiar with uh, from the Art of Noise. They then re-recorded a lot of the stuff and re-released the album in a very similar fashion. Um, but then it was called Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise, and that's the one that many of you have possibly seen. And it had um, Close to the Edit and Beatbox and then the famous Moments in Love. All of these songs featured unique and groundbreaking samples uh, from Langan's VW starting up in the parking lot, which you hear in a lot of their songs, <clears throat> and um, also Stuff Falling in the Hallway, which they turned into percussion. You Instead of having a snare drum and bass drum, Often it was the sound of things falling or something hitting something else. Most famously, you hear Ann Dudley yelling, Hey! in the background, which is featured in Close to the Edit. Um, Firestarter, uh, a song by Prodigy, has that same sample 
and that was hugely popular about 15 years later. When 1985 rolled around, Paul Morley decided to quit the group because he didn't like the direction it was going. Apparently, they were becoming too popular, and he wanted it to remain this faceless entity that was based on the merits of artistic expression. Truth be told, and even Paul Morley admitted this, he had very little to do with the group musically. Again, he kind of provided artistic direction and did a lot of their marketing. In fact, um, he was the guy who came up with the name Art of Noise for the group. The name was taken from an essay written by Luigi Rossolo called The Art of Noises, and he thought that was kind of cool. And um, I think he came up with a couple screams or yells in the background, but 99% of the, the group had nothing to do with Morley's musical input. Around the same time, Trevor Horn bowed out because he had a lot of other things on his plate and the band was going in a direction all of its own. That following year in 1986, they released the album Invisible Silence. You might know it more for the work that they did with Max Headroom with the song Paranomia. Another tune came off this album that was kind of popular but in a completely different way and it's my hidden gem. We'll talk about it in just a minute or two. In 1987, they came out with the album In No Sense Nonsense. Now it's just down to J.J. Jesliak, the Fairlight programmer, and Ann Dudley. Um, a lot of people would say this is when art, the art of noise jumped the shark, so to speak. They did the theme song for Dragnet, you might remember. And then shortly thereafter, um, when they truly jumped the shark, is when they did the cover of Prince's Kiss with Tom Jones. Therein, they place kind of an homage to their earlier stuff. There's a snippet of Close to the Edit and Beatbox in the middle of the song. And though it's kind of fun, somewhat of a novelty, it's not their, their best stuff. In fact, from this point forward, most of the stuff they came up with didn't sound nearly as revolutionary and groundbreaking as their earliest work and that's because at this point sampling was far more commonplace and they weren't cutting edge anymore. They put out a few more albums and um, I bought all of those just as as a fan but I gotta admit I, I wasn't very impressed with uh, what came afterwards and next thing you know they're kind of a footnote to 80s music history. It is important to note however that they brought sampling Though that they weren't the first ones to do it, they brought sampling to the forefront with their work with um, Yes and with Frankie Goes to Hollywood um, in very much the same way that Ron Spector and Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys brought in the Wrecking Crew. Trevor Horn would bring these guys in to, to get the dirty work done. And so many, so many songs uh, that we love nowadays, the basis, the core of the music is from The Art of Noise. My Art of Noise hidden gem that I shall submit to you is rather ironic because it actually won a Grammy in 1986 for Best Rock Instrumental and it's a version of a song that's been around for over 60 years. Um, in 1958, Henry Mancini wrote the original Duane Eddy in 1959, made it a big hit. And we've heard different versions of, of the song in... Um, 16 Candles, and it's in a brief scene. I think it's in the Blues Brothers as well. 
but what many of you might recognize it from is when MTV would go off air due to some technical difficulty and you would see the screen that says, please stand by. This is the song that was playing in the background. In 1986, The Art of Noise brought in Dwayne Eddy to play his Dwayne guitar on this cover version of this classic, classic song. And it's perfect for Art of Noise because many of you don't know the name of the song because the, the name is, is never said during the song, nor would you know who, who did this, this version of it. So it harkens back to Art of Noise's earliest days and, and their biggest success. So enjoy this hidden gem from one of the 80s most tragically underappreciated and underrated groups, The Art of Noise and Dwayne Eddy's Peter Gunn. What's up, everyone? This is Art. I hope all's been well with everyone. It's been a while. This is going to be short and sweet. I know you know the topic, so let's get down to business. I decided not to go with any one particular artist or any one band, but a talent nonetheless. Of course, I'm, I'm talking about Mutt Lang. Thinking back to the first time I heard his name is when he married Shania Twain. You know, I, I don't know if everybody, you know, everybody's got to know Shania Twain, but I always wonder, you know, what kind of person is worthy of marrying Shania Twain? Well, this is a man responsible for prolonging the career of many bands, you know, like Foreigner, The Cars, um, pushing the start of Def Leppard into the 80s. Um, not only prolonging the career, but just assisting many great bands. You know, like ACDC. In 1980, he assisted with the, the Back in Black album, uh, songs like Hell's Bells. Um, another great band, 1981, is Foreigner 4. Uh, songs like Jukebox Hero, Waiting on a Girl Like You and Urgent. You know, I, I've always been a Foreigner fan, but you know that, that album really reached out to me, and it, it seemed like... A lot of the songs were made, written for me at that time in my life. I really think he's the one that was able to push Def Leppard into the position they are today. You know, he started out with High and Dry in 1981. A lesser song, Let's Go, which only reached number 34 on the charts, but Bringing on the Heartbreak. That song only reached number 61 on the Billboard charts, and I, I really, to this day, don't understand why that is high as it ranked. It was... To me, one of their better songs. Then, you know, moving up to 1983, there's Pyromania. Um, we're talking about, I mean, this, this album is what pushed Def Leppard into a different realm. Uh, we're talking about Photograph, Rock of Ages, Fooling. Who doesn't remember those? Especially the music videos are great. And I, you know, at the time, I didn't know this man was responsible for you know, producing these groups, um, making stars out of them, writing these great songs for them. Even um, ACDC, you know, 1980, Back in Black, Hell's Bells, 
shoot the thrill. You know, it just who doesn't know those songs? And you know, like I said, at those times, you you just kind of assume everything was ACDC, but you know, Mutt Lang was in the background. He was the one writing these songs. He worked with several artists. You know, Brian Adams. Uh, everything I do, I do for you. Uh, let's see, another one is uh, Billy Ocean. Get out of my dreams and get into my car. So, I mean, we're we're talking, you know, ACDC, Def Leppard, Billy Ocean, Brian Adams. If you ever get a chance, look 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 up Mutt Lang on the internet. Um, the man is a talent. You know, the cars with magic. Um, loving every minute with Loverboy. I just... This man is just defined the eighties for me. I mean, not knowing at the time of who he was, didn't know the name, but I mean these are some of the eighties top hits. So here's a song from the one of the many albums Mutt Lang produced. And this is a special bonus because you actually get to hear him doing this little countdown at the beginning, which is by the way merely gibberish that uh, I understand he made up right on the spot. This is from the 1983 Pyromania album that sold 10 million copies in the U.S. alone. Here is Def Leppard along with Mutt Lang with Rock of Ages. Enjoy. Hi, my name's Kevin Ackley, and the band I want to talk about that I think is underrated are the Hooters out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I actually got to see the Hooters live uh, on July 5th, 1987 at the Ohio Center. They were the opening act for Brian Adams, and in my opinion, they stole the show. They had so much energy. They had a different sound than anything I'd heard uh, up to that point, and really since that time. Um, and mainly it's based on an instrument they use called a hooter, which is where they got their name, which is a type of keyboard harmonica. And their sound is kind of a mix of Irish folk music, reggae, and rock. So, But they blend it all together so beautifully. And I, they don't, I, I haven't heard a song from the hooters that I don't like. Every song is great. So their debut album was Nervous Night, and it came out in 1985 which was the year I graduated high school. <clears throat> and they had commercial success with this album, for sure. They had some some hits. But surprisingly to me, only one of them cracked the top 20 uh, in the Billboard Top 100. So, uh, Billboard Hot 100. So, All You Zombies, which most of you have probably heard before, um, only made it to 58. Um, and We Danced made it to 21 and day by day made it to 18 they did have another song off of there called where do the children go which um, only made it to 38 so barely cracked the top 40. now they actually had more success in australia which kind of surprised me when i was looking them up um, and we danced went all the way to number six in australia and all you zombies made it to number five so we have our Living in the 80s Facebook page. There's also a, a, a version from Australia 
That's uh, the administrator is Marty McFly Wiseman, which Rob's done a podcast with in the past. And I would be curious to hear uh, Marty's take on the Hooters, whether or not he remembers them well. Um, I just found it really interesting that they, they actually had bigger hits in Australia, even though they were out of Philadelphia. So this this first album, Nervous Night, came out in 85. And, of course, that was the same year as Live Aid. And one, part of the broadcasting, uh, part of the one of the places that the uh, Live Aid was being filmed was in Philadelphia. And so the um, the Hooters were asked to open up Live Aid. And I don't know who asked them, but it wasn't Bob Geldof who was the organizer of Live Aid because he was furious when he found out that um, the Hooters were opening. He's like, who are these guys? You know, So he was really upset. Um, I think they did great, though. It's, it's, you, can, you can actually find their performance out um, online if you look up uh, Hooters Live Aid performance. And they played their two big hits at the time, which was And We Danced and uh, All You Zombies. In 87, which is the year I saw them, they had their second album come out, which was called One Way Home. And they had two songs on there that charted. Um, Johnny B and Satellite, they both peaked at 61 on the Billboard Hot 100. And then they had a couple other songs, Carla with a K and Engine 999, but neither charted. Now, I think songs on both albums are great, um, but probably my favorite song um, is Satellite. So Satellite is a song about televangelists, and um, it's if you watch the video, you can clearly see they're making fun of... Um, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, um, there's there's definitely some, you, you can read through the lyrics how they're, they're kind of putting down these televangelists who kind of prey on people, um, P-R-E-Y, on people and, and try to get their money from them to, to make themselves rich. Um, so probably, yeah, definitely my favorite song by the Hooters. And believe me, they have a lot of good ones, but Satellite, um, definitely my favorite song. Now, if you are interested in seeing the band, they are still together, and they are touring throughout 2022. Uh, I will say, though, if you do want to see them, you're going to have to make arrangements to fly to Germany because all of their dates are overseas. Um, but, uh, yeah, please, if you get a chance, check out Hooters. Um, you can find a lot of their videos online. If you, don't, if you can't find the video, you can at least hear uh, the recordings of the songs. Um, all great. And... Uh, I would really highly suggest you check out Satellite. Hey everybody, this is Matt. Rob asked if I would share some of my thoughts on who was one of the underrated bands of the 80s. I'm sure most people went uh, a different direction than me. Uh, back in the 80s, I mean, don't get me wrong, I loved all the music on MTV and and all the the rock and roll uh, or whatever, but also back then I was 
real big into Christian music. Um, it was kind of just really kind of starting off, you know, in the mainstream, and uh, I was I was all into it. And uh, one of my favorite bands back in the day was this uh, group called Striper. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't, but they were a basically like a heavy metal or a glam rock kind of band. Uh, a lot of spandex, yellow and black. The first album was called Yellow and Black Attack. So everything was, was black and yellow and a lot of Aquanet, big hair and uh, tight spandex, the whole shebang. I mean, they were just a straight uh, heavy metal, glam rocking kind of group. But dude, they were awesome. Uh, Michael Sweet, his brother, um, Robert Sweet, Michael's lead guitar, I mean, the lead vocalist, and his brother, Robert, was on drums. They had Oz Fox, who was a guitar player like no other. I mean, he was amazing. Uh, Tim Gaines was on bass, and dude, they just, they were, they were so good. I mean, I probably went to four or five concerts in high school. And uh, they just they had this thing where they was like, you know, they would, you know, a lot of groups would throw things from the stage. These dudes threw like little New Testaments, <laughs> like little little Bibles. They would wing them from uh, the stage. And you know, it's pretty cool when you like get hit upside the head with the gospel. That's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, they based their group off of Isaiah 53, by his stripes were healed. That's where the striper comes from. And. Then they kind of threw the uh, acronym out for salvation through redemption, yielding peace, encouragement, and righteousness. Uh, I mean, they, they were cool. They were just, they, they were pretty in, in your face, pretty blunt, strong with their message. Uh, they didn't compromise it at all. And, they st- and they're still rocking today. I mean, they're literally still making music in 2021. It, it's unreal. Uh, they they spent a lot of time in the beginning opening up for bands like Rat and Bon Jovi, and then they just started touring on their own. They've got a they got some MTV love back in the day. They had a few songs like um, uh, Honestly and Free and Calling on You. They they got some airplay on MTV, and I think it was Honestly even made the top forty charts to like number twenty three or something like that. But w- my favorite song I'm gonna have Rob play here. Uh, what was To Hell With The Devil. That was probably one of the most famous albums. It came out in 86, I believe. But, uh, I, I mean, being a church kid and one of, those, one of those dudes, I didn't cuss or, you know, have a potty mouth. Uh, so it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around it. They're saying the word hell. Uh, but it, so it, it was kind of fun for, to sing along with it, right? Uh, but when I wrap my head around what they're actually, what, what the song's all about, it's... Uh, Got a good message, but daggone, it's got some good music too. So, so this is uh, one of my underappreciated bands from the '80s, Striper. Enjoy this song.
Hello everyone, it's your favorite living in the 80s pretty boy Snowball, sharing with you the band that I feel was the most underrated of the 80s. Northeast Ohio music legends, the Michael Stanley Band was formed in 1974. But after six years of moderate local success, the Michael Stanley Band released the album Heartland in 1980 on their new label, EMI America. It featured guest appearances by Bruce Springsteen saxophonist Clarence Clemens. The album exploded on the Cleveland Airways. It included such popular tunes as Lover and their first national hit, He Can't Love You. The song cracked the Billboard's Top 40 at number 33 in 1981 and was played on heavy rotation when MTV debuted in August of 81. Nicknamed MSB by their fans, the band set several attendance records in the Cleveland area venues. The band's greatest achievement was a total attendance of 74,404 fans during a four-night stand at Blossom Music Center in August of 82. Also in 1982, the band released the self-titled album MSB, an album featuring their best-known song, My Town, which became a Cleveland anthem that reached number 39 on the Billboard charts. The My Town video features footage of Cleveland, Ohio, a tough blue-collar city struggling to survive. For all the success the Michael Stanley Band achieved in Northeast Ohio, MSB never achieved national stardom. It was a joke amongst the band, Stanley said, as he told the Akron Beacon Journal. It keeps you hum humble because you do four sold-out nights at Blossom, then the next night you go to Indiana and you play in front of 200 people. In 1987, MSB said goodbye to their fans with 12 sold-out concerts at the Front Row Theater in Cleveland. I loved MSB then, and I still listen to them on a regular basis today. I be believe they never achieved national fame as they simply couldn't get past their Midwest looks and sound. In many ways, they reminded me of Huey Lewis in the News, just a bunch of average guys who loved their fans and enjoyed entertaining them. I would like to introduce my favorite MSB single released in 1981 off the album North Coast. This song only reached number 64 on the Billboard charts. Here's the single, Falling in Love Again. It's Rob, and I am back to close out the podcast. I wanted to thank everyone for their input. I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to the songs as well as the histories of the bands and stories and so forth. It has been a lot of fun. Before I go on to the band I feel deserves to be on this list as well, there are a few others I wanted to kind of bring up and recognize as bands I listened to back in the 80s and that I still listen to even now. These bands, I feel, should have got a lot more notoriety than they did. 
but they still have put out some great music and it and thank goodness we have the ability to go back and hear some of the great work these guys put in so uh one band i wanted to mention uh, i'll just list them here uh psychedelic furs david and david adam and the ants big audio dynamite night ranger bruce horns being the range and the band that very easily could have got this spot, uh, the outfield. But the band that I want to bring up, that I absolutely love this band, they are the epitome of the American rock and roll band. When I hear the term garage band, the first band I think of is the Romantics. They were formed in Detroit, Michigan in 1977 and were very big regionally. They eventually got a hit and made their way onto MTV with the song, What I Like About You. Now, that song only got to number 49 on the Billboard charts, but it's one of those songs that years later, you still hear on the radio. Like, you would hear it on MTV or see the video on MTV fairly regularly, and it's one that we all know as 80s fans, they only had a couple of other uh, chart singles uh, successes. Uh, Test of Time went to number 71 in 1985. One in a Million, uh, which is one of my favorite songs of theirs, went to number 37 in 1984. And their biggest hit went all the way to number three in uh, 1983 was Talking in Your Sleep. But that still wasn't enough to get them into the national spotlight. However, they did open for a lot of bands, uh, including The Cars, Cheap Trick, and The Kinks, all Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Which brings me to my personal romantics story. March 9th, 1984, the girl I was dating and I uh, had tickets to go see Adam Ant in concert. I know that date because I have the ticket stub right here because it's tucked away in my senior book. So the opening act that night was, of course, the Romantics. And I'll tell you what, they had such an energy about them. The music was cool. Everybody was up and dancing and excited. And it was the first concert I had ever been to where the opening act completely blew away the headliner. Nothing against Adam Ant. He put on a fine show. I was always a fan of, of Adam and the Ants, as I talked about earlier, but the Romantics were different. They had a different energy, very exciting, just a great, great time. So from that point forward, I really paid more attention to them. I went out and bought their first two albums i actually bought the cassettes because you know i was cool and had a car with a tape deck in it so i needed the tapes so from that point forward they had a fan for life at the beginning of the podcast i teased that i was going to share with you guys the first song released in the 1980s before i do that i wanted to thank you guys for listening to living in the 80s this week I really appreciate your continued listenership, and it is a blast doing this every single week. So, January 4th, 1980, The Romantics released their album called The Romantics. 
it was the first album released by any record label that year. So therefore, it was the first album of the decade. So our closing song is going to be the first song of that album. So we are going to close out with the very first song of the 1980s. Here is When I Look in Your Eyes by The Romantics. music.